You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Hey, the Beagle, how are you doing? Good evening, good evening, good evening. Oh, I sound so much fresher than last week, which I'm pleased about. Uh, the man cold is nearly out of my system. Um, so, yeah, um, thanks for bearing with me. Anyone who did listen last week, I had a few emails, which were quite amusing. Um, people thought it was a new host, so that was a bit dramatic. But yeah, anyway, so welcome, Sports Therapy Association, episode 59. Um, I'm going to have to start a season two. When do you start a season two? Where do you go up to and then start decide it'll be season two? Who knows? But um, it's not going to be yet. I'm very, very excited about the uh, guest um, I'm bringing you tonight, um, Dr. Deepak uh, Ravindran, um, who's been creating a buzz across social media and the people who I kind of follow and move around with a fantastic book, which I hope you've had a chance to uh, read the the, the fantastic reviews on um, Amazon. Um, and I'm so excited we've got the author himself to come up and talk about that. And before I do that, then uh, just a little recap for anybody who is new. It's always a pleasure to get new listeners. If you listen to the podcast, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. If you'd be so kind, if you do enjoy this, to leave a little review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. It just helps us kind of rise in the list of Google results. It's not a money-making thing whatsoever. Um, it's just to help us get our message and the fantastic guest message out to a larger audience, so that'd be great. Um, of course, you do have the option of joining us live. We go out on a Tuesday night at eight o'clock. You can join us via Facebook on the Sports Therapy Association Facebook page, or if you prefer on YouTube as well, we stream there. And if you do join us live, um, then you can uh, leave comments, obviously ask questions directly to the guests. And when you do leave comments and questions, it comes up on the screen. For example, Gary Benson, founder of the um, STA, is here in the house tonight. Hey, Gary, how are you doing? Stacey Garner's just joined us. And you can't see it on the screen, obviously, if you listen to the podcast. Um, but all of these comments I can bring up on the screen. Hey, Stacey. Hey, Catherine, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Um, and the same thing goes for YouTube as well. Um, you can watch us um, via YouTube and leave comments as well. We've got something like 452 subscribers now, which is lovely, fantastic. We've been going for, I don't know, 59 episodes now. We haven't, well, yeah, exactly. We're going for 52 weeks, so a week and um, a year today. Um, so thank you very much, everybody, for your support. Um, really nice to see people subscribing and enjoying um, the uh, information that we're putting out. Much appreciated. Um, thank you. Before I get carried away, let's say thank you to Tim Allardyce last week uh, for his um, very eye-opening trip down exercise prescription software lane. Um, some amazing parts of exercise prescription software, which you wouldn't even think about. Do you think I need this? But what, what, what do I need? I'm not sure. So it was really, really great to hear from a professional. Obviously, Tim is from Rehab My Patient and obviously he's going to be biased. But as somebody who has looked at his software, um, and um, surround myself to it from, by a lot of people who use that software it is pretty good and he has spent a lot of time um, perfecting it so um, I would suggest that you do go along to his website obviously there is a trial member for STA you get a free month I believe just to check it out um, go to the website and also just check the website again I'm so impressed by the quality of the blogs and the articles he's got in there so go to rehab my patient let's put that in big for you so you can see it if you're on your phones go to rehabmypatient.com uh, four such articles and have a little look at the content on there but as you hear from last week's episode um, which is available on all podcast players such a huge resource um, with uh, some like 1800 exercises to be added over the next two weeks massive so thanks Tim for joining us for that much appreciated but for tonight um, sit back prepare some questions it's going to be all about pain which you can't get away from really because everything we do is about working with people in pain I remember once um, doing presentations for and workshops for a rather large exhibition um, in the north of England and then the third year I was going to speak they said something like Matt can you make it a little less pain orientated we just want stuff about injury and that's when I realized that I had to part ways with that particular organization because that's part of the problem isn't it separating pain um, from what we do you can't separate it um, it's all about that so um, I'm very 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 excited to bring somebody who is rocking the world with regards to pain education with his latest book um, The Pain-Free Mindset um, as always, if you've got questions, feel free to spring them. People here, I've already um, warned Deepak, again, be on the same page anyway. But people who listen to the podcast, don't forget, you can still come into Facebook and leave questions or go to YouTube. If you've got any follow-up questions for our guests on this show, then don't just sit in the silence. Feel free to email me, matt at the sta.co.uk, and I will forward them. Um, it's a continuing education thing. It's not just tonight. It's This should stimulate some thought and then keep it going. Okay, And obviously, if you want to come to the STA and have a little look around, then you're welcome to as well. Right, 
I'm just checking in the comments here. Gary Benson says, I'm not able to view. Everyone else okay? I'm hoping everyone else is okay. Oh, it's okay now. Thanks. Good. Okay. Right, that's the introduction. Um, I'm going to now bring up the man himself, Dr. Deepak Ravindran. Deepak, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Matt. Good evening to all your listeners and viewers here. And thank you for having me on the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Good to oh, be no, here. It's a real pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. I'm very, I'm very excited. I feel like a bit like an excited teenager because I've seen your name thrown around so much amongst people I admire and respect. And, and a few people have recommended you to me, actually, in terms of the content you're putting out there. Um, but it's it sounds you're, you're no new kid. Can I say you're no new kid on the block, are you? You've been doing this for a while, haven't you? Well, in terms of pain management, yes, it's been about close to 20 years now in terms of working and doing this. Uh, but yeah, completely new to this world of authors and writing and social media and podcasts. So that's a completely new journey for me. A lot of new networks being formed, nerve networks and external. <laughs> oh, what a nerd. Fantastic. I love it already. So give us a little bit of background for people who aren't familiar with you of, of how you got to the stage you thought, right. I've been doing this for a while now. I need to write this book. What's different about this book? What made you think I really need to get this information out there? So a great start, actually. Thank you so much there. So I did my anesthesia and pain management training back in India, uh, 93 to 98, and a basic medical degree. And I came to the UK in 2003 because I thought I needed to super specialize or subspecialize in pain medicine. There wasn't the opportunity to do that in India. So I came over here did my anesthetic training and then did my pain fellowship in UCL and Stanmore. And I got a consultant job at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading, where I joined in 2010 as a part-time anesthetist and part-time pain specialist. Um, and that was my role. I was doing and I'm still doing inpatient pain management work. So looking after people after surgery, ward rounds, uh, people admitted in the Royal Box Hospital with pain issues. I do outpatient clinics, so I do a lot of uh, pain procedures and pain interventions. And then in 2015, I set up and helped set up the community pain service for Berkshire. So there's the inpatient, there's the outpatient work. I was still doing a day of anesthesia as well. So I was seeing patients with pain coming for surgery, post-operative, perioperative, management and then looking after them in the community. So the whole journey of a particular patient was visible to me from the time the GP made the referral right through to sometimes post-surgery and back again in the community. I was prescribing opioids. I was doing all this. And, and when I did my fellowship and I joined as a consultant, I was all blue-eyed. And I thought, you know what, as long as I have a strong heart and, and a good pair and, and a nice strong needle, I can block anything and therefore relieve everything and anything. And it was a disappointment to me by 2012 or 13 that I was able to achieve that kind of excellent relief and long lasting pain relief with nerve blocks or medications only in 30%. So only 30% of my patients were getting any benefit. And, and, I, and I can't say that it was bad technique. I learned it in a good place from good professors and consultants. I couldn't say that my x-ray imaging and where the needle was wasn't right. People are getting benefit. It just wasn't lasting long enough. And that's when I realized I had to go back to the textbooks, go back to actually to understand what is it about pain that was not giving me the success rate that we all thought we should have with our biomedical sounding interventions, drugs and interventions. And, and it just blew my mind from 2014 to about 2017, 18, the reading that I was doing, and I was feeling, oh my God, there are so many other things that could be done and should be done and are being done in different parts of the world, but are just not being brought or to mainstream medicine, are not being talked about and are not being performed by pain clinics or by the NHS. And I realized actually there are people doing it. There are pockets of excellence in the UK. There are pockets of innovation and excellent good practice in other parts of the UK and abroad. It's just that we were not bringing it. And, and that's when I realized, well, actually, I need to bring this in a way to patients, to my healthcare colleagues, to GPs. And that's what got me interested in saying, well, you know what, I think 
trying to go after healthcare professionals could be one possibility. So I was doing a lot of talks to GPs. I was talking to patient support groups. I was talking to anesthetic colleagues, pain physicians, but that was kind of almost one-to-one or small numbers. And that's when I thought, well, you know what, if I approach patients directly, if I try to empower them, and that was falling within the line of what we are now looking at sustainable healthcare. How do we promote prevention and talk about self-care first? And that's where I thought, well, if I can write a book, bringing all this that I've read into the mainstream, write it for the public and keep it as as a first step for any healthcare professional to refer to, as a first step for any member of the public to dip into as a starting point, then that would be making my job a lot easier because that means that when a patient potentially has read this and come, they are much more empowered to say, well, I've got this pain, I've done A, B and C, but I need you to help me with D and E. That puts me and them in a much better place to overcome their pain. And and that's what led me to write The Pain-Free Mindset. It's fascinating to hear because as predominantly our audience on the Sports Therapy Association podcast are soft tissue therapists, and they hopefully, with our help, they are arriving at that realisation which you felt in 2014, that everything, well, not everything, but a lot of what you've been taught up to that point by respected peers and individuals and courses was missing a large chunk and and for sports tissue therapists, one of the problems with that is it's like you either think, well, it can't be, this is this is not right. It can't be that everything I've been taught has been mistaken, and they just reject it, or they just feel fear and think, oh my god, this means that everything I've taught has been rubbish, and I've now got to throw it all away. And what we try and do on the show is make them realise that it's kind of neither of those. You haven't got to go to the polar extremities. It just means you need to tweak what you do a little bit. The first question I'm interested in asking you is. Why? I remember talking to Dr. Rachel Zofnis, who we had on the show a while ago, and and she was quite kind of, it's almost as if she felt she had to be careful about what she said because of the position in America. I think there's a slightly more extreme responses when you do kind of call out the opioid industries and things like that and the pharmaceutical companies and things. But why do you think still in 2014 there was so much of this other alternative stuff missing from mainstream medicine and that it took people like yourself to start educating Well, I I think it's a little bit more complex than that. As much as pain is complex, Matt, I think this whole business of actually convincing others to take on a new framework is always going to be difficult. And you exactly highlighted that principle that has a name. That is the cognitive dissonance that we all have, that when we face something that doesn't meet what our knowledge is, You know, you have to first fight it and then somebody will try to put us down. And then all of a sudden it will be the only way that we could have done it. And that is a paradigm change that will occur with time. There was another thing which I realized uh, when talking about implementing something is that there is this gap which almost everyone is aware, but not ready to talk about it, that by the time the research is done, it takes somewhere between 17 to 20 years for it to come into textbooks and to mainstream practice. So we are dealing with a lot of good quality pain research, especially our more nuanced understanding of how the brain and the spinal cord and the nervous system has been more clearly imaged using functional MRI. We understand better how signals are transmitted and processed. And that has happened only in the last 15 to 20 years. So I guess it is still part of the process that this is a paradigm change that will take that long. And the wonder and the goodness is that we've got social media to actually accelerate all of this. And I think it's going to be podcasts like yourself, the work that you're doing, the work of so many other people harnessing the power of social media that we can now bring down that 17 years that has been traditionally put in research to actually two to five years or six years. I mean, to put it in context, this year alone, in the first six months of this year, from the UK, there has been seven books written about pain aimed at the general public. And this has been written by scientists, by researchers, by clinicians, by journalists, all aimed at different sections of the public, the patients, the healthcare professionals and policymakers. 
So there is that groundswell of appreciation now that is coming into saying we need to be accelerating the information that we have learned about pain because it has become a pressing global problem that our focus on looking at low back pain and saying that there should be necessarily a medication or an intervention is not right. And there should be a way to actually fund all those mind-body therapies or find a way to support those mind-body therapies like soft tissue therapy, like massage, because it's always my personal belief is that if you try to look at it with the lens of a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, we are going to fail with a lot of mind-body therapies. They just aren't ready or ever can be reduced to that kind of uh, simplistic one variable versus control that the paradigm of RCT demands. That's never going to happen with a mind-body therapy for a complex, multi-layered biopsychosocial phenomenon that is pain. So I think that understanding is now coming to the policymakers that, okay, we can ask for some RCTs around soft tissue therapy, but I don't think we can emphasize it and say that that's the only reason we won't fund it. The question should be, how do we say, well, we know what the risks of medications are. We know what the risks of surgery are. Can we have a more nuanced shared decision making with patients to say, what is it that's worked for them before? What is it that feels safe and non-threatening to them? And how do we then find a way to incentivize and pay for that and structure that within a rehabilitation plan that brings in these elements. I think that's a discussion that's ongoing. But in answer to your question, I feel that there's no need to throw the baby out of the bathwater. We just need to be a little bit more pragmatic and say, well, enough of too much medication or too much surgery or too much interventions or even for that matter, too much soft tissue therapy or only soft tissue therapy. But there's a powerful role for soft tissue therapists, I think, when you you are often the first, you know, physiotherapists, soft tissue therapists, osteopaths, chiropractors, acupuncturists, more than me, you guys and your profession is going to be the first port of call for a struggling patient in pain. So you have the power to actually make a difference to calm that nervous system that's in pain and put them on the first steps towards a proper joint up plan. You know, you're as much of a part of an MDT as what I have in my secondary care setup. So it's a question of actually making sure that we have a common language between us that makes sure that we get the patients through a good journey that's sustainable and that improves and brings them back to their quality of life. That's really good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a little soundbite of that last 90 <laughs> seconds because I love the word you're empowering therapists. You're saying you've got, you know, the first port of call. It's really good. And that's a theme which we've had throughout these episodes as well, seeing how often we are the first person who people with rheumatology issues, pelvic health, male and female issues, um, hypermobility, they're going to come to us probably. And, and if we, like you say so eloquently, if we all speak in the same language, it doesn't mean we're going to treat that person, but we can recognize it and pass them on really important part of the link to to the correct professional so yeah it's a big responsibility it's exciting i think it's going to be an exciting time for soft tissue therapists um fantastic so um as always with this people in the room i'm looking through the people in the room and i can see a lot of people who are already on the same page here but i wanted one of the lovely things about your book is it I've, I've read it i've read it a couple of times now because fortunately it's it's not that long which is lovely when it comes to books um it is Thank still long i'm not saying it's like a little pamphlet but yeah. it's mean it's so easily uh, read and and wonderfully written did you write it for the patient predominantly which it seems that way um and secondly i'm wondering out of those seven books you mentioned how many have been written for patients or whether there are books being written for therapists um, and thirdly actually what i'm asking the question is do you think that your book would serve as, um, it's a bit of a, a leading question, but even though it's directed at the patient and talking about what the patient can do and empower the patient, it's still a valuable read for a therapist to understand the patient's perspective? I, I, I guess, I think each of those seven books have been aimed at a different demographic. So 
two of the books or I think three of the books are predominantly aimed at the general public to increase their curiosity of understanding about pain. Two of them are aimed purely at healthcare professionals to increase their knowledge of preparing for pain. One of them is entirely for the pain physician to say, this is the new knowledge that pain physicians need to have and doctors and anesthetists need to have to get uh, more knowledgeable and empowered. Um, I think uh, where my book sits in is luckily or fortunately, my book is one of those that's almost in the self-help slash support category because I've made it and I've tried to make it as practical. I imagine that it would be for the patient sitting in Berkshire, that one person who's sitting there with pain, wondering whether where to turn to in the internet, what this bewildering array that Google throws up when you're in pain, what it is that I must do and what it is that I can do if I'm stuck on a six-month wait list to see a pain clinic and my GP can see me only for 10 minutes. So one of the things I highlight to the patient in the book there is you have got 8,760 hours in a year when you are suffering with your pain. And if you calculate and total up all the times that you've seen a specialist and gone for a injection or met your GP and got a change of medication, maybe gone for one massage therapy or a physiotherapy, that all will account to roughly about five hours in a calendar year. What are you going to do for the remaining 8,755 hours that's yours to do something about? And that's where I've tried to pivot and say, you can do something more than just wait in line for the next injection or next drug-based appointment that's going to happen in biomedical care or the next physio or massage session that's going to happen in a fortnight. What would you do in between? Why is there a rationale and a reason that you do need to do the exercises or stretches that your therapist has told you to do? And how can you do it? Habit formation, because that's all fundamentally, I come at it from the fact that we now know enough about why the nervous system, our amygdala, our unconscious and subconscious and supremely conscious nervous system does what it does. We now know enough from different fields of healthcare and economics and behavioral science to actually say, why we do the things we do and why we stop doing some things and how we can actually make it habitual. And that's what I've tried to compile into the book into an easy fashion so that the patient is, has empowered to pick it up. And when they can't do it, I think we as a healthcare system must rally around and provide those steps. So the information there is enough for any health therapist as well to take it and say, okay, this is where the patient's struggling. This is the information I can give them. Because my, my thing is, um, one of the things I understood about behavioral science or, or for that matter, you know, for example, I use the uh, thought process of, of Coke. When Coke introduced it, it's Coke Green. It never ran there. But they had a very good idea that if you want people to change, you need to give them at least seven to eight touch points, contact points, of the same information in different formats by different people in the hope that one of them will land and they will change. That's what commercial advertisers realize. And I was sitting in a pain clinic, uh, three years or four years in the journey of a patient, seeing them for 30 minutes. And if I suddenly spring it upon them that actually your pain is not necessarily because of an issue in the tissue, but it is actually little bit something more than that, that's way too much information for them to take on. And it's at complete odds with everything that's gone on in their journey in the run up to seeing me. So I had to make the upstream part of my patient's journey as favorable so that by the time they come to see me, they are has bought into the whole aspect and they know what I am for, how much I can help, rather than pinning all my hopes upon a pain clinic and the mythical injection of relief and that's where this book is aimed at it's for the patient but it also should help the healthcare professional looking after them the first port of call the gp yourself other therapists to say okay this is my role this is how i fit in this patient's journey 
And these are the points at which I would have to say, get other team members involved to get this patient the help that he or she needs. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, I'll give an example in a second, but I'm, I'm just going to say out there for people listening who are therapists, it's written for patients, but it is a fantastic guide for therapists as well, particularly therapists trying to enter that often closed or intimidating door of a little bit more evidence informed practice and understanding pain. And obviously, if you can't, if you don't understand pain yourself, then what chance have you got educating or helping a, a client or patient, you know, if, if you don't really get your head around the principles yourself. So I think it's an excellent source of information. For example, and I'm talking about maybe level three, level four um, sports therapists, sports tissue therapists, um, sorry, sports massage therapists. Within about four or five pages in your book, let's just bring this guy up here. The people listening to the podcast won't be able to see on the screen here what's going on. But basically I've got a picture of a little naked man with a with a looks blonde and he's got his foot in a fire. Now, if that description to people listening to the podcast means nothing, like he's got a wad on the screen, a naked man sticking his foot in a fire, then that's kind of for me, I mean that's that's that image says so much in terms of moving and, and becoming more evidence informed. Um, you introduce that to a patient, and I'm sure there's many therapists out there who have got to level four, level five sports massage or something, and they, they, they wouldn't even recognize this image or what it signifies. So this is going to take it back to basics again for people in the room and probably some people listening. But that image, why is it so important? Uh, it's difficult. You could talk a whole hour about this. But what's so important about that image in terms of understanding of modern pain concepts? So that image that a lot of your viewers are seeing, and, and I'm going to see if I can make it visual enough for your listeners as well, is this really amazing philosopher, French philosopher in the 17th century called René Descartes. And he introduced this concept. And at that point of time, we have to understand the human body really was designed and, and instructed by the church at that time that it should not be uh done anything upon you know so the practice of medicine in the 17th century was very very rudimentary and unrecognizable and dominated by leeches probably but then you had this gentleman Descartes suggesting that there is a difference between the mind and the body he said that the mind is part of God but the body and all the pain that comes within it doesn't have to be a part of God and therefore it can be opened up, reduced to its individual parts, and then put back together again. Now, his suggestion is what is known as a Cartesian model, or it is the predominant theory within biomedical medicine as we practice today and as it is taught in all anatomy, physiology, and medical school, nursing school, physio school curriculums the world over. And in that particular philosophy, Pain is thought of as something that starts. So there is this picture of this young boy with his foot close to a fire and a wire is shown coming from that foot, which is very close to the fire. And Descartes imagined this as pain being uh, a wire that is activated when a fiery sense is perceived in the foot. That wire then goes to the back of the brain to a structure called the pineal gland where it rings a bell. When that bell is rung, there is a release of what he called as the humors. And that's why people can be a bad humor sometime. But those humors would then activate the muscles in that part of the foot to pull the foot away from the pain. So that was his way of saying that as long as you then found other ways to cut that cord or that wire or block it or take it out, you can relieve pain and there should be no pain. That was excellent because as a medical situation that spurred all the medical biomedical advances we're all familiar with today, the fantastic advances we made with surgery, with cancer surgery, with everything that's advanced there is due to that way of thinking. But that reductionist model isn't really true at all. It is absolutely a flawed premise of understanding about pain because our new last 20 years of understanding how the brain and the spinal cord actually function. So there is this really excellent way of imaging called functional MRI, wherein you have people going into a research-based MRI scan, and then when they get poked with a cold metal rod as part of an experiment, 
you can actually see which parts of the brain light up and use up more oxygen. That functional way of understanding what happens when somebody feels a noxious stimulus or a, what we call as a painful stimulus, air quotes for those who are listening, is actually a function of what the brain decides is a threat. And so what we have to now take away from all this information that's coming through is that pain is not the sign of damage. It has no connection to a tissue or a structural problem at all. The intensity of pain is in no way related to the kind of physical injury that people may have. It is all to do with how the brain needs to protect that particular organism for survival, procreation, and recreation. That is all it is. Pain is a protector. Fantastic. And that's why if you are a soft tissue therapist and you're with a instructor who pauses when you're reading a textbook saying, oh, and the pain receptor sends a message to the brain. That's why the teacher takes a sharp and takes a breath and says, no, it's not a pain receptor. It shouldn't be called a pain nerve. Pain doesn't happen until the brain decides whether it's bothered or not. It's just messages going up and then it's actually the central nervous system which decide, interpret that information. And it's, an, it's a really important point, isn't it? Um, because otherwise, as soon as someone comes in with a painful ankle, all eyes on the ankle. Something's wrong with the ankle. Let's fix the ankle. Let's do this to the ankle. So yeah. if people listen to podcasts, this this image here, and if you are listening to podcasts, you have a look, looked it up, then look up um, René Descartes. I mean, he's famous for many, many, many reasons. An absolute genius at the time. Um, Cartesian coordinates, every time he's using X and Y axis, yeah. um, and plenty more, a lot of geometry and, and surgery. and um, But... He's also got the weight on his shoulders. I doubt he's bothered now of, of this misinterpretation for pain, which has caused uh, an awful lot of um, yeah, knock-on effect um, uh, misinformation. So fantastic. What I'm going to do now, again, now people can't see the screen, but I'm going to fast forward a few years. Um, obviously, shout out to Patrick and Wall, but we'll go here to Neuromatrix as well. Where on the screen, we've got um, this input and this output, and the input's got cognitive, emotion, sensory, then the output's got pain, motor, stress, emotion. So can you talk us through this kind of development, if you like, the next stage of how we regard pain? It, and this is a great uh, diagram, Matt, there. So the neuromatrix is, is the most prevalent or dominant theory right now where we understand. And it's a kind of evolution of Louis Gifford, uh, who is quite a very well-respected therapist, a 70s there, physio and manual therapist, really. And his mature organism model is was a predictor at that time. But then within pain science and within the MRI imaging that came towards the latter end of the noughties, the neuromatrix model is quite a useful model because it actually posited that depending on the input that comes in and this input. So what you have is a box within the skull, the brain, and we haven't even talked about the second brain that is the gut as yet. But this primary brain, the three pound tissue that is there within the skull is really not capable of understanding what's happening in the outside world. It has to therefore depend on the sensations and the information that it receives from the outside world through the five senses, basic mostly through the visual, then the tactile, the touch, the skin, and then something from the ears, and then the vibration sensation and where its position senses in the joints, the proprioception there. One other thing to expect in there is there is another set of sensations that's coming. So all of this that I've talked about is the exteroceptions, things that are coming from the outside. But the brain has also got to keep tabs on what's coming from the inside. And that's where the second brain information from the gut makes a difference. And that's the interoception. What is the information that's coming from your gut, from your inside of your knee, from the inside of your hip or your pelvis or your uterus? All of that is the interoception and the extraception. And all of this information is coming at the rate of knots, at the rate of billions of such information stimuli is reaching the thalamus or at some point in the brain. The brain really cannot allow all this amount of information to come through. And therefore, it has this matrix that is distributed throughout the brain 
to decide on what it needs to give priority and preference to, and it therefore decides what must be paid most attention to, and then it puts out what its mechanisms will be. So the output could be a pain, could be some form of motor stimulus, could be some form of stress. There is a slight development on this for your listeners and viewers there, is that the neuromatrix is now slightly more evolved and, and a more uh, elegant way of understanding, though slightly, again, more complex, is goes back to now another mathematician, I think this time from the UK, is called Bayes, Robert Bayes. And, and he had, you know, you might know of his Bayes theorem and on probabilities. But right now, the present elegant understanding of this information processing in the brain is by looking at the base theory of probability and errors. So what it means is that the brain, from the time it has started to learn each time, right from the young age, right from the time it's developing itself and forming new connections as we grow and look at the environment, is that it forms a set of priors. So it has certain experiences that are coded in the network in the matrix it has an idea of what these experiences mean. It has an idea of a formation of the external information and the internal information. And it has formed certain networks and experiences and ideas. So when a new signal arrives from somewhere outside, so someone getting hurt for the first time or someone feeling a new sensation from the outside or the inside, that information or stimulus or nociceptive stimulus arrives at that particular part of the matrix, the matrix now has a job to compare it to what it knows from the prior. And it then decides, well, is it matching up or not? Is it the same as it expected and predicted? And if it's already made a prediction on what the response will be, then the output could be pain, motor or stress. But if there is an error in the prediction, i.e., you are having a very pleasurable time, you are in a very pleasurable surrounding, but then you get a stimulus that feels very different and it isn't anything like you've experienced before. The probability is that the brain may very well say, actually, you know what, given what I've experienced before, given all this is new, this probably isn't dangerous. So it can make an error. That error can sometimes be costly and might make it not respond to something that's needing to be responded to. But a lot of time in chronic pain, what we think is that the error rate is gone to the default of saying everything is pain. And that's where we think that the error rate in chronic pain means that every time any output comes, even if it is not meant to be painful, because the brain has got a wrong predictive model, it puts out the message as a output of pain again or more pain or amplified pain. And that's where our present understanding of this model. So it's a slight step up from the neuromatrix model, but that is what we are saying is going to be the way the brain makes decisions about threat, about protection and what to do and how to react. Excellent. Um, there's a question here from Craig. Sorry, Craig, I don't want to cut in Deepak as he was um, describing that. But yes, we are talking about um, Dr. Deepak's um, book, Pain Free, The Pain-Free Mindset. Um, and, and everything which we're talking about here, if you are sitting at home or listening to podcasts and already the doors are closing in your mind thinking, oh my God, that's five words in a row that I don't understand, then this is exactly <laughs> what the book's for. It, it really is geared for patients to be able to look at a page analyze it have a little think and then move on to the next one this is the advantage of the book um so yeah fantastic great stuff thanks deepak um yeah very interesting and of course then this goes on to uh, quite a few people have probably heard on the show the biopsychosocial model which basically to sum up is just talking about how you can have different inputs from different areas which isn't necessarily could be not just the biology but also the psycho the psycho part and the um, social part as well so fantastic look it's already 8 45 um so remember people listening live if you have got any questions in particular then uh do feel free to um put them in here i'm keen to answer any questions or put them to um deepak if you have got any um Matt, actually thinking... if you 
if you think about it, the biopsychosocial, which all your listeners will be looking at, is is something that we you know we all talk about it, but it has a very relevant impact on the social and the psychological element. Is if the nervous system and the immune system at any time feels under threat, and that's what uh, I would like your listeners to take away is that that threat doesn't have to be a physical threat. As far as that brain sitting within a box, which has no perception of what the reality outside is, even an emotional threat will produce the same responses. So we are dealing with a nervous system and therefore an immune system because both of them are very deeply connected. Those systems are under threat. And when they are under threat, they need to be soothed. And often from the time mammalian cultures have evolved, soothing is best achieved by touch. That is what you see primates do when they go about sort of, you know, calming each other down. When you see other mammals do, touch is such a fundamental and really primitive, but more important emotion because that touch calms so many systems within the amygdala, within the fear, within the emotional circuits. And that is what I think a lot of uh, physiotherapists, emo- soft tissue therapists, sports therapists are actually doing. Even if you were not aware, this is something that's come through from the work by Robert Sapolsky. Uh, for your uh, listeners, a book to check out is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh, and, and it's a fantastic book because it brought home to me that understanding that actually that's maybe why touch is so important. And, and yes, it may be very difficult to prove in a randomized controlled trial how you can actually do a sham touch because every touch is touch. But that kind of touch with a therapeutic within a therapeutic relationship envelope is fantastic because it gives the opportunity for that very hesitant, threatened nervous system lying on your couch to be actually calmed down for the first time in a neutral non-threatening, protective manner. And that can be the first step that you set on because once you calm that system down, they can be more receptive to trust and taking on any other information about nutrition, about sleep, about lifestyle, everything that just makes my job so much more easier. Fantastic. Yes, indeed. Um there's more questions I want to ask, but I don't. I want to get to this because um, this is this is the lovely thing about the book. I think you deserve a trophy in, in coming up with the best mnemonic um, I've seen probably. In, normally, mnemonics and acronyms are things we 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 tell people to run away from. There's a new soft tissue course out there, and it's got like three letters or something. They just run away because it's just been devised to put out something new there. But you've come up with something which is pretty exceptional. People um, on podcast can't see this. I'm going to put it on main screen so you guys can see it. But I'm interested as to whether you thought of the name of the book for this or whether you thought of this as an acronym or mnemonic and then decided, right, that's going to be the name of the book. But just to read it out, people can't see it. So the book obviously is called The Pain-Free Mindset. And once you start looking at the book, then all of what we've been talking about um, this evening comes together in the sense of you can't just hit somebody with opioids and or or start doing cross friction for Achilles tendon because there's other stuff going on. So the mindset is broken down um, fantastically into medication, that's the M, interventions, neuroscience, drugs, sleep, exercise, therapy, so mind and body. Um, and as you say, um, the idea of the book is once you've introduced this information about understanding pain a little bit better and talking about Descartes and things like that, um, by the time you get to part three, you can take all this information. And I love the way you you make it so clear that this whole journey is very personalized, that you're, you're using questionnaires um, and all sorts of tools to make sure that by part three of the book, the patient is getting their own blueprint, their own individual way of dealing with their own personal experience, which is what pain is, is a very personal experience. But to um, continue for I can't believe it's already 8.50, this is so frustrating. Let's have a little look. If you could guide us through those those um, seven, just checking my maths, those seven um, words, what made you chose those? Maybe highlight a few of those which you think that people aren't so aware of. Um, yeah, take me through them if you'd be so kind. Um, so I think the publishers liked the idea. I had the mindset uh, acronym because I felt that it needed to be something that would stick. So that was right. very much a reason to say a stick. 
I liked the fact that it was a, a little bit of a, a, a play on the word because we do need to reframe our mindset about pain as well. So that was my thought process there. I think the publishers liked the mnemonic, but somebody in the marketing team actually felt that it would work as a title for the book itself. I had a different set of thoughts for the title there, but they felt that this would work very well, not just within the book, but also on the cover of the book. So all all, all credit to them for thinking of that because uh, you know that's why I think they are in the field they are and I, I should stick to writing or being a clinician. Um, and and uh, the concept of that came along and, and I really wish that actually I could have had a different acronym which put mind-body therapies a little bit higher up because I think they are more important. It almost feels like because they're coming last, they can be thought of last. I think they are probably the most important of the uh, holistic relaxation, nervous system, calming therapies need to be. But in deference to how mainstream practices it helps because the M and the medications and the I, and I kind of say, don't stop at the M and the I, actually make sure you get the N, the D, the S and the E and T all together because it is the whole package that will make the most sense for the patient and will make it most sustainable for the patient and for us there. And I'm pragmatic about it because as an NHS clinician, I'm being increasingly asked, you know, the evidence for drugs not being effective or dangerous or interventions being a problem and that maybe people are over-investigating or over-injecting is high, is already coming up. A lot of interventions and medications are being decommissioned in the NHS or are not being offered anymore. So I am already being put in a very awkward place by various policymakers within the NHS saying, you shouldn't do this because there's no evidence for it. And while I completely agree that the evidence is not as great as we thought it would be, there isn't necessarily the funding for me to offer the other things. So the book is actually a way to tell the patient in front of me, please understand my problem. I understand your problem. You make a very pragmatic decision of how wealthy you are, what you can afford, what you can't afford. Because at the end of the day, if you're stuck with a condition that right now we don't have a cure for, we need to find a sustainable way of managing it. And that might be, okay, you go for a fortnightly session of soft tissue therapy. But in that two-weekly therapy there, what else are you going to do in between to ensure that you're as primed as possible for everything that your therapist and your GP and your team is helping for you? And then there would be a time wherein you might say, I want to try a medicine because somebody's uncle and aunt and someone else has said it worked for them. So you want to try CBD oil or you want to try something new kid on the block. And let's then have a shared decision making. Let's have a proper chat with me or a colleague of mine who can actually say what works. Because the reality, and this might be a shocker for all your listeners, is the evidence is that only 30% of the drugs work 30% of the time in 30% of the people. That's about it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of bringing again an alliterative number. You know, you can probably say a little bit extra numbers, 30, 40%, but that's it. That is all drugs do. And almost all surgeries, when you start comparing a surgery, so we say, okay, everything should be a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial, the reality is that very, very few surgeries have been subjected to that same level of authority. They have to be subject. If you say that drugs should be double blind, phase one, phase two, phase three, before they come to the market and to the consumer, a new drug like duloxetine or some drug that you might all be aware of, paracetamol or codeine, needs to go through those steps before they become available to the public, they all need to be compared to a placebo and they should be superior to a placebo in order to be prescribed. Surgeries aren't. Most surgeries haven't been compared to a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And in the last 12 years, when they have been compared to a placebo-controlled trial, you know, for example, Oxford was part of a trial where they did a sham washout of the shoulder and they compared it to a proper washout of the shoulder. There were knee surgeries, a keyhole washout of the knee as compared to a proper washout of the knee and a sham washout. And you know what? 
8, 12, 18 months down the line, there was no difference between the patients who had a sham surgery and a real surgery. So that's why surgeries like knee arthroscopies have got decommissioned by the NHS. So every time we've compared a surgery to a double blind randomized trial, they have found to be wanting and not up to spec. So we've got a fundamental problem with the evidence base for medications and intervention, which means we need to bring our understanding of pain, the end, back up to speed really fast, really quickly across the entire healthcare system. We need to talk about the second brain, the immune system, and how we can make a powerful impact. And to me, out of all the mindset, the N and the D, the neuroscience and stress techniques, as well as the diet and nutrition techniques. So these are fundamentally the nervous and the immune system, which is where all of nociception and pain lives. The N and the D by far to me are the most important chapters. And to me, those are the best chapters for the healthcare professional listening today, for the patient taking away, because that gives them very tangible things to start doing immediately in their practice without the need for anyone else to kind of support them. And they can do it boldly, bravely, with very little side effect or risk. Yeah, excellent. Definitely. I'm, I'm glad you said that because for any therapist who um, is already kind of savvy with the, the modern interpretation of pain and pain concepts, it is indeed, I just had to make a change here. I put down drugs for D, which I've just changed now, diet and nutrition. The diet and nutrition chapter is fantastic. And that's the reason why I picked it up and read through it a second time. That's going to educate and, and continue um, making you think um, anybody who's already experienced with what we've been talking about so far. It's a fantastic chapter. I might even twist your arm to try and come back one day just to talk about that particular chapter, because I think that's a real bolt on now to anybody who's familiar with Mosley and Butler and all that kind of stuff. Um, the implications of yeah, the diet and nutrition is huge. It kind of ties in nicely with the the um, uh, moving on from the model of the newer matrix to take on other things as well. So that would be that. It's a fantastic chapter, really good. But unfortunately, it's eight fifty seven, which is annoying. Um, just in case uh, people on the podcast can't see what Gary, uh, founder of the STA, said here, but already Gary can't keep my hand out of my pockets. Benson has said I will happily fund five copies of the Pain Free Mindset oh, for STA. Thank members. you. <laughs> Comment mindset on this thread to enter the prize draw, which I will draw on Sunday. We've had a few tears here because people have already ordered the book before Gary said that. He always does that. People listening, going, "I'll buy it. I'll buy it," and then suddenly Gary goes, "Oh, I'll chuck a few free ones out there for you," and that's very kind of you, Gary. And I really do recommend it. People who don't manage to get the draw done, and don't worry if you have already bought it, is it's well worth what I said was four cups of coffee. I think it's like eleven pounds, um, and then you've got the the Kindle version as well, which is really friendly and easy to to read as well. Because on Kindle, sometimes books are just too scientific, and your eyes are killing you, and you're trying not to wake your wife up or your husband up or something with the light blaring. But it's really a pleasure to read. You haven't got to have it on too bright a screen. It's a really, really, really good book. I would recommend it. And Becky Carroll agrees. And if Becky Carroll agrees, and that's the truth. Okay, All the well, patient stories in there, uh, Matt, are actually, you know, real patients. And in fact, six out of the seven stories of the patients in there are all people who are now in the public profile. You know, Louise is part of the British Patient uh, Society's voice chair there. Uh, Sean Jennings is actually in Cornwall. He's doing a lot of work with the GPs out there to talk about de-prescribing and reducing and coming off opioids. And, uh, and Tina, and many of them are actually, they are doing their bits by being pain advocates and saying there is a different way to managing themselves. And I think that kind of patient stories is so much more powerful because you and I can actually say all this bit there. But when patients themselves can attest to the benefit of walking, about movement, about the right use of massage therapies. That has a much different impact on a pain sufferer than a therapist or a clinician or, you know, a doctor or a injector like me saying it. Hugely. And that's, again, that's one of the great things about the book is it is real life case scenarios and it's a chance for therapists to learn from the patient. And if, if one of the main reasons why therapists have, I've got it more wrong than less wrong over the last probably 
couple of decades is because we've been looking at just as a therapist and ignoring the person in front of us. We've been looking at what we've read about all oh, this clever and how can we affect the tendon and do this. And, and we've been ignoring just saying to the person like you put in the questionnaire, you know, when was the last time you remember not hurting? You know, and, and all these simple questions, as we've always said, just increasing that subjective, forming a hypothesis in the subjective and then testing that hypothesis with the with the objective rather than yeah. traditionally where we just jump straight in with the objective because we've done a course last week and we're looking for it already. So um, listen, Deepak, um, yeah, it's it's gone far too quickly for me. I'm actually feeling a little bit down now. I might have a little cry afterwards, but it's it's it's, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. But I'm Likewise. pleased because the way you talk um, comes out as you've written as well. It's, it's you, again, like so many of the speakers we've had about pain, you to make the complex easier to understand and take on. So um, I really appreciate your time. Um, so much more I wanted to ask you about body maps, which I thought was a brilliant mention as well, which people could uh, take home and start working more with. The yeah. pain self-efficacy questionnaire was fantastic as well. There's so many tools in there for therapists. So, But like I say, I'll probably try and twist your arm and, and find out what your tip is and try and get you back in a in a while to uh, continue with the, yeah, a, a follow-up. to help out, yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, what have you got planned for summer? I know COVID is still it's a bit of a dodgy question with COVID, but anything nice planned or for the rest of the oh, year? Oh, we, we go, I mean, obviously the rest of August is not there, but we have got some time off to Norfolk. I've never been to that part of the UK before, so it's staycationing of a different kind. Fantastic. And, <laughs> and the weather uh, promises to be good. Yeah, hopefully so, hopefully so. And are you already starting to think about book number two or is that too soon yet? Or? Right now it is too soon, I think. I, I would probably, uh, a lot of these things with, I'm, I'm a lot uh, involved with long COVID right now. So yes. uh, I'm the lead for the long COVID service. So that is right now the most pressing need is to set up a service for the patients, make sure that it stays on and there is a full clinical and NHS setup in my area. So that's been on the top of my mind for this year. In fact, who was it, Rob? Was it back? Who did you do the long COVID podcast with? Oh, yeah, Rob Lawson, the back pain podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. We had Rob on the other day. Not Rob Lawson, Rob Bevan, yeah. Bevan, yes, yeah. That's fantastic. So, people are interested in, um, yeah, long COVID, um, then have a listen to Deepak and Rob, who's a guest on two or three um, sessions ago. A really, really, really interesting um, episode. Right. Um, I'm just going to make sure uh, for people who um, haven't gathered yet, let me just find, I've got a little shot here from Amazon. Where are you? Oh, thanks to um, Craig. Yes, I shall enjoy Norfolk. Excellent. Thank you, Becky. <laughs> let's get rid of that. Um, do, 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 do. Yes, so. Um, well, thanks, Lizzie, as well, and Sharon. Yeah. There we go. So, Pain Free Mindset uh, Seven Steps to Taking Control and Overcoming Chronic Pain. Um, I wanted to also to actually let's just do a last question if you're okay we've been yeah. talking about persistent and chronic pain but as Louis Gifford said behind any pain whether it's chronic or acute is a I think he says a rationalizing emotional brain a lot of the concepts you put in this could be um, or it's important to take into consideration when you're dealing with with anybody a runner who's hurting who's coming and they're clutching their knee ankle it's still the same brain at the end of any pain isn't it it is definitely. I, I I think the the chronic and the persistent are all going to be part of the you know the way marketing SEO and words and all that stuff. There, let's put it out there. Uh, the principles that I've written in my book is for any pain, even for cancer pain, even for any form of pain. It's very important to take into account, and actually that's what my push. Whether it's palliative cancer pain, pelvic gynecological. It does not matter, acute or chronic. The principles are the same. You might say that there's a lot more nociceptive stimuli coming when you've had an acute surgery, but that doesn't in any way minimize the need for bringing in some good quality nutrition as people prepare for surgery. So, for example, when you're preparing for surgery these days, the concept of prehabilitation, trying to make the waiting time for surgery as useful to the patient, you know, improve their sleep, look at their nutrition, reduce inflammatory elements in their diet, uh, look at their physical movement, strengthen the muscles and soft tissues around a particular knee joint that's waiting to be operated, teach them uh, anxiety reduction techniques and breathing techniques. All of those are absolutely relevant, even if you're going in for a surgery or you're going to have acute pain. And there are studies to actually say that putting in that good bit of 
wraparound mindset-based strategies for someone who's going to go for surgery actually reduces the amount of opioids they have after surgery and helps them in getting discharged 24, 48 hours earlier than what pathways would indicate. So absolutely, there's no difference in that chronic persistent acute. The person is the one who should be looked at. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Right, people, um, that's it. So I'm not quite sure who's going to be on next Tuesday. We had a little bit of a cancellation, last minute cancellation. Um, but there will be guarantee something happening next Tuesday, eight o'clock. So thank you very much for joining us live. Thank you, everyone who's listened and downloaded the podcast. I'm talking about the future now um, from the present. Um, and thank you again to Deepak for such an entertaining and interesting um, hour. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Matt. Thank you. It's been really good talking to you as well. And thank you for the involvement from all your viewers today in the STA. And thanks to Gary Benson for the shout out and the prize door. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.